Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in a couple of weeks, series 12 of this podcast will be kicking off. In the meantime, after receiving some brilliant feedback from republishing the Daniel Pink episode in March, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing 12 of my favourite episodes since I launched Future Work Life. And today, you'll hear my conversation with Jennifer Moss from March 2021. So Jen, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I've got loads to talk about. I've got loads of questions for you. But the, the first one is, why should I be making the bed first thing every morning? I love that you asked that. You know, one of the things um, this year that's been really tough on people is this brain fog that is a symptom of uh, chronic stress. And it can make us feel like small tasks are really hard to accomplish. Some people are having a hard time even getting into their work clothes if they're working from home. And, um, and I know for me, it's been just unloading and loading the dishwasher. It's just feels so exhausting. Mm. The thing about making our bed in the morning is it actually builds cognitive hope, which is um, a strategy for us to feel like we can create, um, you know, our own pathways to success and to hit goals. But it also helps our brain to predict that we can do more goals, bigger goals, accomplish more throughout the day. And it's a simple act of doing, uh, you know, something that may seem small, but there's something to accomplishing that small goal that makes you feel proud of yourself. Um, and so it doesn't have to be the bed, but it can be something that isn't just, you know, hygiene, like brushing your teeth. It has to be something that takes a little bit of effort and then you pat yourself on the back for it. And then it just increases your cognitive hope, which is really, really important skill to have right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's a similar type of approach to why you might practice gratitude in the morning. Is that, would that be fair just to set yourself up in a positive mindset for the day? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we do this gratitude uh, at dinner time with the family. We say, you know, go around the table and say, what made you smile today? And, um, and it's really helpful to create a lot of discussions around what people are thinking and what has stood out to them. And we learn a lot about our kids because they don't like to, you know, necessarily talk about what they learned at school, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as they hit 13 years old. So, you know, what made you smile today sort of prompts them to spend the day looking at what they have versus what they don't have, because their brain is subconsciously reminding them that they have a report to give at the end of the day. And, um, and it really does, you know, change the neural wiring of our brains when we tell it um, to start looking out for those, uh, you know, those actions and the things that are happening in our lives and in other people's lives to, um, to share around the dinner table in the evening. Yeah. I've always struggled a little bit with gratitude practice. I've had a coach for a couple of years and he always recommends starting. So I do some journaling in the morning and I try and finish off with a bit of gratitude, but I struggle not to just return to the same things all the time. And that sort of eventually puts me off because I'm sort of thinking, have I just got a distinct lack of imagination, but can it be as simple as just naming a single thing that happened during the day? Yes, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I've done some research and uh, read some research just on why gratitude journaling is very hard for people. And they've actually found that if you feel like it's a chore, it ends up, and, and if it's something that we feel like we have to do every night, it ends up working against um, the 
actual neural development of gratitude. And if you look at Dr. Emmons' work, he actually did um, a study and he looked at 10 weeks of um, just his students' gratitude journaling on Friday. Basically, they provided him a list of things that went well that week on a Friday afternoon. And they did that for 10 weeks and, you know, all of the the measures increased. Um, And so it should really just be, you know, adding it into something that you would already do around the table, you know, talking to your children or once a week on Friday, I suggest putting in a thank you um, recurring meeting where you just thank someone in your life on, um, on Friday yeah. afternoon. It actually shouldn't be a chore. It should be just something that happens once a week and it gives us all the same benefits as it would if you were, uh, and actually it's bad, more beneficial than if we were doing it every day. Yeah. That's a nice point actually about the thank yous, isn't it? Because I think there's obviously plenty of evidence of receiving thanks being a, a nice experience, particularly at the moment, I think, even if it's just dropping a thank you over Slack or over a video call. But actually there's certain evidence to suggest that giving out that type of thanks is also beneficial, isn't it? To the giver as much as the, as the receiver. Absolutely. There was uh, one study done that showed that um, we doing acts of altruism so someone doing something nice for another person actually sustains our happiness three and a half times longer than if we did something just for ourselves and so there's a selfishness obviously to it in a good way Um, but there's a network effect a, a contagion effect that happens when we just have a recurring thank you to someone because uh, it tends to catch on essentially and people then thank other people and um and so there's a there's this great you know byproduct of being grateful for someone else Hmm. um that that creates a really healthy sort of cultural you know um benefits in the workplace but even just amongst our own relationships personally yeah i was aware of your work for a little while and you've been writing a lot about burnout recently but over the years previous to that you were generally sort of described in things that i uh, either read your uh, pieces in or, or on talks as a happiness expert which uh, is just a brilliant title for your job. How did you end up becoming a happiness expert? Um, So, yes, I mean, it's been such a wonderful, you know, journey to start working in, you know, I did a lot of HR communication and, um, and sort of looked at workplace well-being, you know, long before I became a happiness expert, but there was sort of a, a personal event that happened. And when I, you know, went through this um, sort of situation where I you know, learned um, about how athletes is actually my husband who became acutely paralyzed and he was a pro athlete and, and his recovery was just so speedy and, you know, all these other things that played into it. Yes. His age and health and all of that obviously played into it, but there was some other piece and it was just his sort of mental fortitude, his psychological fitness, because as an athlete, there's so much that, um, gets developed very early on resiliency, um, uh, hopefulness, uh, collaboration, relationships, all these sort of social emotional skills that get built into athletes. And it's probably why we use sports psychology and in, in leadership development so much. Well, this event sort of um, got me thinking about 
what it is that leads to our happiness and particularly at work because I had already, you know, had spent so much time in, in a sort of HR communication. But um, I realized that we spend 50% of our waking hours at work and, you know, 115,000 hours at work in our lifetime. And so many people were unhappy there. So Mm -hmm. it led me to really try to understand why so much of our time is being spent unhappy and um, and how we can develop more happiness in something that can actually really drive our our well being if it's if it's going well you know and if we enjoy what we do and if we have purpose in what we do and if you know and if it's being supported and we are engaged all those things actually make us so happy um, so that's where I started to tackle the idea of of happiness and specifically in the workplace yeah. And, and how much of that should come from the individual and how much should come from the employer? Because there is a proliferation of kind of self-help books, I suppose you might call them, or life design, however you want to phrase it. And I, I, I see many, many individuals who are really interested in bettering themselves in, in whatever respect. And I guess happiness is a really critical part of that. But is there an onus on employers, on organisations as well, to facilitate it because my sense is that it doesn't really matter from a work perspective how much you focus on making trying to improve your happiness if the uh, environment doesn't exist within which you can thrive at work it's a thankless task yes absolutely agree um and i found unfortunately i mean the the latest stat is um you know 15 percent of the global workforce was engaged at you know at work yeah and um you know, and, and maybe in Europe and North America, it's around 30%, but there's just very few people that are happy at work. And, um, and so we, we talk a lot about self care, and a lot of the strategies have been based around self care. And then so then we buy the self help books that, you know, help us develop our self care, um, you know, and find all the tactics that we should use to, to breathe better and to, you know, feel better about ourselves and to, you know, feel resilient when we go into work. Um, but the the problem is, is that we shouldn't have to be resilient against, you know, the our employers or the workplace. I mean, there's this, you know, great sort of analogy that that is sometimes overused in, in but in this situation, when Dr. Christina Maslach, who is the foremost expert in burnout, shared it with me, she she said, you know, we we send these canaries, essentially us, back into these coal mines where we're, you know, we're they're coming out and they're covered in soot and disease and they're sick and we're like, why aren't you being more resilient? And I think that that is the the biggest issue is that we need to not expect our employer to be responsible for our happiness. We are responsible for our happiness, but they should be they should be in charge of not making us unhappy. Yeah. That should be something that they protect. They can't be responsible for our unhappiness. So there's a there's an important collaborative way of thinking about preventing burnout, about increasing well-being and making people happy at work, and it is a it's a we problem to solve, not just an individual problem to to solve on their own. Yeah. And, and just on, on the point related to happiness, and I, th- I think this applies probably to the context of your husband, what's 
post-traumatic growth. That's just a phrase I heard you use. And how is that relevant to our current circumstances? And we are recording in March 2021, and we're still very much in the midst of a global pandemic. So I'm interested in how post-traumatic growth relates to our experience of life and work right now. Well, you know, when people have these sort of social emotional skills of rebounding, the sort of the way that they frame certain circumstances, especially trauma, um, is a big part of how they'll predict handling the next stressful event or how they come out of that challenge. And, um, you know, it was really interesting because, like I said, when you're an athlete, I mean, you go, I've watched my husband, you know, get all the way to the, you know, the end of uh, the season, they could be undefeated. And in the last minute of the game, they, they lose the entire championships. And, and I, you know, as a elite athlete that's played in four different world cups for two different sports and winning and losing some of those events, it's, it was real. it's really hard, you know, to rebound, but to athletes go back the next year, like gluttons for punishment, and they go back mm-hmm. and they they try again, and they don't even think about the loss as something that would completely take over their whole lives. They look at it as how do I take from that experience? They're watching game footage, they're looking at all the mistakes they made, and you know how can we take that and, and learn from it? Well, the same goes for us when we're in an emotional marathon like the pandemic or we're, you know, we're just run the the longest, you know, Ironman of our lives this last Mm. year. And we need to think, okay, well, how do I reframe what has happened this year? Um, What can I learn? Because that develops this post-traumatic growth. And so what I've been saying is, you know, challenge your negative thoughts. If you say, I never want to think about 2020 again as the worst year of my life. Well, what would you never be able to think about again? Would that mean you'd cut off the memory of a cousin or a or child or grandchild being born? Would that, you know, cut off your, um, you know, your memory of developing emotional flexibility because we all had to pivot so fast? Would you mm. stop um, believing that you can, you know, get through change with optimism, because there was a million things that were canceled. And optimism essentially is the ability to look at a situation and realize that it won't turn out that bad, even though it wasn't as planned. So these are all skills that we've developed. And um, these, these amazing skills, and it wouldn't have happened for not going through the pandemic. Yeah, I think there's also a certain argument, isn't there, that some of these fundamental shifts we've seen in work, probably they may well have happened at some point. I think we probably reached an inflection point with technology, which meant that remote work was possible at scale. But I'm not sure when we would have got around to doing it. And I think you know, my experience is probably similar to millions of other people, which is that I had a relatively flexible approach to work beforehand anyway, but I never would have spent time with my toddler my two-year-old son as I have done over the past year if I wasn't forced to work from home and with that comes both the opportunity to you know spend time with your loved ones a little more but also to shift perspective and 
people's perception about what work could be. And it seems difficult to imagine that we're going to go back and all of the surveys would suggest that very few people want to go back to working in the office full time. And that for me, taking positives, I always try and take positives out of many things, but that is a positive. It's just made this shift possible. And I suppose if we take the opportunity, it will allow us to reimagine what work looks like within the context of our life overall. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, you know, I, I, I've heard, especially in the survey data, the qualitative data that we got back is that the people that were experiencing, you know, higher well-being were looking at the sort of their shift in priorities. Uh, A lot of executives had gone from traveling, gosh, 150 to 200 days a Mm. year to all of a sudden they're at home and it, it made them realize how much they had missed and how much time that they were missing with their family. And a lot of of data has come back around people, like you said, not wanting to go back to the office full time, but having some sort of hybrid approach. And I think that is because we did reassess this year, what really matters? What are we wasting our time doing that's not really efficient? Um, A lot of employers realize that they're entire workforce is just fine working from home Mm. um, and that they are actually quite productive. Um, I have lots to say around burnout when it comes to managing that still work from home life, but a hybrid approach is going to be really what I keep hearing from organizations as the best path forward. And I think that is so incredible because I know personally, you know, I traveled a lot for speaking and now I'm, you know, do a lot more virtual talks. And that means I get to be in more places in a week. And yet I don't have to, you know, get on a plane and leave my family. Um, So that has been a really good shift for people. And, uh, and I don't think employers in the workforce are going to be able to accept just going back to to business as usual pre pandemic, you know, workforce rules. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned burnout there. And of course, there's two sides to every coin. And for the positive things to come out of COVID, clearly, from a work perspective, and burnout has become more common. And you'll be able to tell us whether that's true. But certainly, I think more people have heard the word burnout, which is probably indicative of its prevalence in our lives. Maybe a good place to start, actually, would just be to define what burnout is and to get a sense about whether there are different scales to burnout, because I suppose in many people's understanding, it's the end point which many people think of when you you have to take time off work, but it isn't necessarily an indication of the full scale of burnout, if if, if that's a decent way of putting it. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of describing it, because people do sort of look at burnout as as the end point. And actually, it, it... is sort of a long process and we can have the same stressors impacting us and we have, you know, small dips in our well-being, but then it's just this over time, you look sort of at a map of a typical experience of burnout, it's 18 months to two years, and then there's these dips and then suddenly it's the same stressor, um, but that's where we fall off completely off the map. And, um, and that can be an 18 months to two year rebound for people physically and emotionally and mentally to, to get back to work. Um, but the, the important distinction around burnout, and it was helpful that the World Health Organization in 2019 identified burnout as an occupational phenomenon. It's essentially stress at work that is left unmanaged. And mm. that distinction about it being an occupational phenomenon really helped 
you know, everyone in, in research and, um, you know, and, and organizations and the labor sort of organizations trying to help create some policy and law around this, that it isn't just this sort of, you know, stuff that's going on in your home life and personal life. And then, you know, you're burning out and then work suffers. It really is this systemic, um, real sort of issues and policies and infrastructure at work that's causing this. And so that made, you know, people be more aware of, you know, what was institutionally happening in the workplace that were causing people to burn out. And when you actually, you know, analyze burnout um, based on Maslow's scale, the MBI, the Maslow Burnout Inventory Scale, what, uh, what, it, what we see is just frequency of certain symptoms increasing. And that's how we define levels of risk. So, you know, if you have con- more then three times per week, you're feeling exhausted, you know, at the end of the day and your work is completely draining you or that you feel like you can't get up in the morning, high levels of exhaustion, those types of things. The frequency of that means you're at higher risk of burnout. And if you just feel more cynical, so that cynicism piece is really important. And what we've seen a lot more this year, it's increased a lot, is this feeling like it's not going away. And so the more cynical we feel, you know, every week, like I don't have control over this. This is just how it's going to be forever. You know, that kind of self-talk or narrative, the more frequently we feel that the more at risk we are of burning out. So it's really just frequency of these feelings. The less frequently we feel this, the less, you know, the, the lower risk for burnout, the higher we feel this, the higher frequency of feeling this, the more likely we are at that point where we're, you know, hitting the end of that map. Yeah. And is it that burnout has got worse over the past year or are we collecting more data? Because I think there's, uh, and this is probably a positive, definitely a positive shift, which is that companies are perhaps more aware of people's mental health because they're not right there in front of them. You know, when you're having to speak over video calls and you're there's less, just less presence, I think people have been taking pulse surveys or deeper studies of how their employees mental health has been affected is there a sense that we are seeing more cases but that's probably reflective of the fact that we're just collecting more data on it or have we seen signs that the circumstances are contributing towards a greater rate of burnout Absolutely. We are definitely seeing higher rates of burnout in this last year. And, and we are collecting data, more data on it for sure. But, um, but there's just an increase in burnout. And a big part of that is um, that, you know, and I, and I mentioned just this idea of it not being a life thing specifically, but it is a work life thing. Yeah. And, um, and so we have seen just the impact of people grieving, of uh, having just all of these external stressors that are out of their control. I mean, a global pandemic puts just so much strain on your emotional mental health. So mental health has already been a major problem, but then you, you know, add 24% more meetings to the day, you add um, 20 more hours for women in particular, uh, you know, in their work week, because they're handling and, you know, juggling familial demands, we see, um, you know, Zoom meetings going from 10 million active users in December to 200 million in March. I mean, there's just been an extreme 
increase in um, in need for productivity, in having to learn new skills, manage new technology, and doing that all under the experience of going through something as scary as um, what we went through this last year. Yeah. So there's two, two different directions I'll be keen to go to. I know what you've discussed there that it is a work thing. This is about work lives rather than things that's happening in our personal lives. But I guess there are certain signs that those close to us might notice. And that, those close to us might be colleagues and, and managers, but perhaps from the, the point of view of a partner or um, you know, a friend, are there certain signs that we might be able to pick up visibly? And I know that the exhaustion is, is one thing, but I wonder whether there's certain signs that we should be picking up to and begin flagging it and be more open and discussing this more openly in order to preempt it getting worse. Absolutely. You know, in the, we'll start with just at home, you know, um, in personal lives, if we're, you know, the thing is too, is we're not able to spend as much time with our friends in the same way. So, you know, they might not be picking up on it with the same cues as they would if they were seeing us all the time. Um, But, you know, a partner or someone in the family could notice that you're withdrawing more, you're more irritable, um, more headaches, sleep is being impacted. Um, You know, you're just, um, at the end of the day, you, you, want to have a nap because you're so exhausted. Um, These are the type of things that are, you know, signs of burnout. And um, in the workplace, how we can really sort of get better at identifying where burnout comes into play is looking at performance, what we would already have defined as performance or in the past have defined as performance issues, start to look at historically what this employee was like before and what they're like, you know, now. And if they were really engaged in what they were doing, they were, you know, really connected to the rest of their team, they were a great leader, or they were a great coworker. And then suddenly, you know, and they were really timely, for example, and they weren't taking six days, sick days, and all of a sudden, they're, you know, late more often, or they're leaving early, or they're making mistakes, or, you know, they're like withdrawing as another example, or they're frustrated or irritable, or they're quick to anger, you know, we see these things again, as that they're, they're just not doing well at their job or and and they, which could create a firing event and yet often it's burnout and it's being misdiagnosed as as not you know doing well at your job mm-hmm. and so that's why we need to have more conversations more frequent conversations make mental health conversations at work um, much more safe we need to feel psychologically safe at work um, and that means you know regular meetings with managers asking their staff, you know, how was this week? Were there barriers to your success? Did you feel like you could accomplish your goals? Were you, you know, stretched too thin? What are the things that we can do for next week to make that, you know, those barriers go away? How do we pull, you know, some of the the priorities that you think you have that you have to meet and, and, you know, downgrade those. So those discussions have to be had all the time. And then, then we catch burnout before it gets to that breaking point. Yeah, it's a delicate balance, isn't it? I think there was a feeling early on that we needed to socialise the relationships with people from work and suddenly there was an explosion of Zoom social events, which I personally find a a real struggle, even though I'd say I think in person I'm 
pretty sociable but actually that method that means of medium of communication i find incredibly difficult to engage with particularly after a day spent on it talking to the same people that hasn't worked i think there's probably now people are starting to retreat from that idea a little aren't they yeah we saw this um you know this these zoom cocktail hours and so much of that you know not just even personally but but the employers were like let's all do team yoga and you know i had so many people just livid at the idea that they're you know doing downward facing dog with their boss <laughs> and it was uh, humiliating and you know and they're doing it over zoom and it was so awkward and you know um a lot of leaders said that they were just really trying to f- sort of throw everything at the wall because they had no idea what was yeah. going to happen to the culture and so they were sort of desperate and and they realized you know that is a problem i write about it in the book actually i had a really great um chat with someone who was um an expert here and and they were saying that um that well-being can't be workload and i think that's what started to happen it's an it was another thing that i kept um hearing that we're sort of triggering employees who were saying you know i just work 60 hours a week and then i get a note from my hr manager to to remind her to use my calm app or my you know or my breathing app and it felt it feels so tone deaf to people because it's like i want you to take 20 hours off my work week and then i'll have time to be able to listen to these apps and so i think a lot of that has just made people you know much more resistant to to gathering in those ways and it's not been really you know, it's not been really healthy for developing the relationships this year that that make us happy at work. Yeah. Now we've touched on a couple of things that haven't worked there. I know you're doing you're doing some work with Harvard Business Review, I believe, at the moment to share some sort of tips and advice on how we can approach the challenge of burnout. I wonder what your what you've seen in terms of the better organisations. What are the best organisations? doing related to this and how how are they being proactive is it through initiatives is it simply giving people space is it allocating actual time for downtime through the day what sort of approaches to working better at this point so you know i had the the fortune of talking to so many amazing leaders doing really good work and so that was actually quite encouraging to see you know um this, this desire, you know, if this didn't work, okay, I tried it, you know, maybe yoga on Zoom wasn't great, but you know, I was just testing it out, it didn't go well, scrap that. And there was a lot of really great agile leaders that, mm. you know, tested and then threw out those things that didn't work. Um, one of the, you know, employers that I, or one of the CEOs that I talked to, um, she was f- fantastic. And she was a Um, chief of people for continuum and what she had done actually and and leading up to the pandemic was starting to look at pay differently and understanding that her workforce were you know um you know about i think 70 60 or seventy thousand employees that had to go from being in call centers to working from home these employees that that she had were either first job or last job um they some of them had come from um a very sort of uh, um 
difficult and marginalized communities. Um, some of them had been incarcerated. These were hourly workers, and she was really big on trying to give um, lots of different types of people the opportunity to get work. And so, what she did too is she realized that coming from you know pharma you know, and healthcare that she used to work with executives, helping them with their burnout and managing compensation packages and stuff. And so it was totally different. And when she spent time just sitting down with people and empathizing with what they were dealing with, and then the pandemic hit and she realized people were just struggling to make ends meet. Some people couldn't even go, um, you know, to the doctor's office or pay the co-pays. Um, they couldn't afford food. And so she connected with this uh, technology brand that allowed people to get access to their pay the minute that they work. Hmm. So they do a day of work, they can get access to 50% of their pay at any one time. And hmm. so they're always able to get access to their pay when they need it in an emergency. And just what an interesting you know, way to think about your workforce differently than so many other people are. I mean, that was uh, an excellent example. Um, I also had the privilege of speaking with Alan May, who's the chief people officer for Hewlett Packard, again, 60,000 employees, it's hard to scale, you know, empathy across an entire organization yeah. like that. But he had put in place, um, it was sort of a really good burnout prevention strategy years before the pandemic hit. Um, and this is what more leaders should be doing is preparing for these crises. And he was really great at just letting his employees do what they needed to do to feel okay. Like there wasn't any proctoring of social collaboration chats. There was no expectation around productivity in the same way. And he really just helped people to connect, um, you know, through technology in a way that was helpful. Parents were talking to one another in parent groups. They had, you know, even just, um, he had this one group of people living in under 500 square feet in Bangalore group. I mean, it was just everyone. Wow could find a way to like talk about the stuff that was really impacting them. And, um, and then what he did was he started to sort of actively listen. And when there was really great ideas, he'd pull them out and institutionalize them, you know, for parents or for people that were isolated or living alone. And so he sort of gave a voice to people across the entire organization. And, and that, I mean, they're employee experience scores were through the roof when they surveyed them. 96% of um, the entire staff said that, um, that they felt still very connected to the mission and that they felt trust in their leadership. So these are the kind of things that, that we just, we need to just be open and not be married to ideas. And a lot of these leaders, and I have hundreds more, but a lot of these leaders were just really empathetic and, um, and they didn't, they didn't have a plan. They just, allowed their employees to crowdsource what they needed yeah that's a really interesting application of technology actually isn't it because our natural or certainly my natural inclination is to blame technology for some of these problems certainly the fact that you're you feel like you're never really switching off because the mode of working has changed but i think when the technology augments the human you know human interaction and human empathy then it can clearly work really well 
That's exactly it. We're seeing that um, it's been a struggle for a lot of younger people in the workforce that have maybe just gone into their this job in the year of lockdown. And so they haven't had, you know, in real life connections with any of their peers or their boss. And that's been really hard for them because it is hard to make those um, emotional connections with with people through Zoom or when you haven't actually, you know, met them. And so we have to just sort of remember that this isn't always going to be like this. But if we can give people a lot of different access to each other in a way that makes them feel most comfortable and not just, you know, force one mode of communication on them, like video conferencing, um, I think that it ends up being that people will sort of flock to what they're most comfortable with. And we need to just provide trust that they're going to make the right decisions. I've got a question for you, actually, which is related to an article you wrote. There's a sort of certain paradox between the idea that cynicism develops as a symptom of burnout. And yet, actually, burnout in many cases can affect people worse when you care very much about your job, when you really you know, feel a sense of purpose. Why is that? It does seem contradictory. You know, it's it's really interesting. I wrote this article for HBR that ended up being, I think, the the most one of the top three most popular articles of the year and it was about passion driven burnout so I had this quote that that you can you know you love what you do you never work a day in your life is a nice idea but a total myth and Mm -hmm. I think we we often um, miss um, diagnose harmonious um, passion and obsessive passion and harmonious passion is what we're all striving for when it really works where you have that, you know, great workplace that supports your well-being. You are, um, you're able to to manage your workload, and you're not obsessively, you know, committed to your work to the point where relationships are suffering. You know, there's this this sweet spot that's really wonderful if we can we can get to it. But a lot of people don't have that, and it's a mix of both. You know, your own personality attached to that and also just the conditions at work. But we see that in healthcare often. It's a legacy of overwork already. Um, It starts right in high school, really, as you're preparing to try to get into a school that will get you into med school. And, you know, all of it is just so much um, of a it's a likelihood that people are going to burn out in certain professions. Um, we see that in teaching as well. Just people are um, teachers work so much more um, above and beyond the hours that they're getting paid for that they end up making. And in the, the U S we found that they're making about minimum wage um, as a teacher, because they're working on average 20% more hours. And we're seeing people just, who love their stakeholder, they, you know, teachers love their students, and, um, and care about their students, maybe love is the wrong word, but they really do care about the success of their students. And then, you know, uh, doctors, physicians, and, and nurses, they really deeply care about the the health and safety of their patients. Um, and what happens is it, they work to the point where of exhaustion and cynicism. You see this a lot in both physicians and nurses um, and um, to the point of, of detriment. I mean, when you look at suicide rates for physicians, both male and female, they're way above the average. And female physicians, because of compassion fatigue, are about 130 points above the national average um, mm. when it comes to suicide rates. And, and males are 40. So there's just a huge, I mean, it's mm. a big deal for both, but females in, um, in particular, because they care 
so deeply and they're so impacted um, by their relationship with their patients, it's, it's detrimental. It's really hard on, um, on people who love what they do um, and can't figure out the, that barrier between when it's spilling over into obsession versus just harmonious passion for work. Yeah. And I guess the, the even with the best intentions, it's not always possible to stick to behavior, which limits the risk of burnout. I'm, I'm interested in your experience of this. Clearly, you have studied this. I know that you've got certain rules, for example, not having uh, video calls on a certain day of the week, which can help mitigate the risks to an extent. But it, I'm, I'm guessing also that it's as, as, as much a struggle for you as for anyone else in terms of getting that balance between work and life, particularly for, as we've just discussed, given that you clearly care a lot about the subject matter in which you're working. You know, I, um, I really, as we, I mentioned before the talk, you know, us discussing here is that I have to follow my own rules because, um, there's a lot of irony if the burnout Mm. expert burns out. Right. So, um, it, and it's still hard. It's very difficult when there's other things and external pressures at play and systems at play that, that do make it hard for you to, to, not burn out. But there's lots of strategies and lots of tactics that can be implemented. And so it is still a lot in our control. You know, um, I talk about the organization being responsible for their employees. Um, and I'm my own organization. So I have to be responsible yeah. for my my employee, right. And so, you know, I do um, try to make sure that I break out my calendar in a way that gives me breaks throughout the day. Um, I talk a lot about doing one frivolous thing a day and I put frivolous in quotes because it's not, it's just our mindset around it as being frivolous. And so Mm. for me, I actually take a one hour, you know, walk with the dog in the forest and I do that. And it feels like, you know, with three kids, with the work that I'm doing, with the amount of, you know, media interviews and, and speaking, I, you know, how do I have time to do that? Um, but it is so critical. And I come back to my life and my kids, I usually do it at the end of my workday before dinner, and I come back to my family in a way better mindset. I'm, you know, I'm there and present for them instead of just, you know, pushing through. We hear a lot of people use that word, like, we'll just push through, we'll just push through. And it's so dangerous, because there is a point where you can't push through any Mm. longer. And, and the the catastrophic event when we do that is quite significant. It could mean, you know, a year or 18 months of recovery instead of an hour in a day. And, and an hour isn't even necessary. It 20 minutes is enough. 20 minutes of walking in nature every day does enough for us to be able to regroup. Um, I also say people are foregoing the commute in the morning. And I've been telling people to do a fake commute. We've added 48 minutes to the day, which is essentially a round trip for most people. I mean, there's lots of people that drive further than that. But for, for the average person, it's about the round trip you know, time of a commute there and back from work. And so um, what I suggest people doing is just going, putting on your podcast or putting on whatever music you would have listened to in the car on your way and walk around the block for 15 minutes. Um, I've been reading about some people now just going and getting a coffee and coming back, you know, getting in the car, going and getting a Starbucks and coming home. So it's it's about making sure that we're giving ourselves the space um, mentally to 
be more connected to the work in the moment, which will make us more efficient. We'll actually work less. We'll, you know, we'll have um, better relationships with people. We're less irritable, which expands our relationships with coworkers and, and in our family. So there's all these benefits. And it's just a reminder that that needs to be scheduled in, it needs to be yeah. part of the workday. You need to make sure that you put um, these these spots in your calendar that are not to be touched. Yeah, completely agree. Well, Jen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining me. I advise everybody listening to to look up Jen's work. I'll put some links into the show notes. It's really important. And I think that the fact that we're thinking about it more and talking about it more will hopefully mean that we can look towards a more positive future as we come out of the other side of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. I feel like we're starting to see you know, the signs of light. And, um, and I always think about what, you know, what is the benefit of this last year? And I think there's been so many really amazing skills we've, we've built that we'll be able to take in the future of work and it's going to be better, you know, better for it. Yeah. Thanks, Jen. Thank you.